What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. I'm so excited to be joined by Jessica Burbank today. Jessica is an organizer and a political analyst whose work with the Young Turks and More Perfect Union shines light on so many important economic issues. Jessica previously worked as an organizer for the Bernie campaign, and she's also given a TEDx talk titled A New Direction for the U.S. Economy that you should definitely go take the time to watch. Kind of spoiler alert, there are calls for revolution at the end. (laughs) I think you guys are going to like it. (laughs) What's up, Jessica? How you doing? Yeah, that was a big risk for me, deciding to to end with that. My father was like, do you have to end it like that? And I was like, no, I really, I really do, actually. Um, <laughs> thanks for having me on. Really happy to be able to chat with y'all. So stoked to have you here. And oh my God, that was such a baller talk that you gave. Like, I, I was blown away that you were brave enough to go up and make such a clear political argument in favor of completely dismantling and changing our economic system. It was it was wild to see that in a TEDx talk. So bravo there. Yeah, I was very surprised they let me do it. And I'm here too. Oh. <laughs> John, I'm so sorry. I'm the worst. This time I'm here. And this, this time John's here. John is our producer and editor, and he does a whole bunch of the behind the scenes work. And uh, yeah, excited to have him here. Yeah, John. <laughs> Someone appreciates me. <laughs> Damn it. Well, welcome, John. I'm glad it's the three of us. <laughs> Thank, thanks for having me, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, man. <laughs> so today we are drinking a delicious daiquiri kind of cocktail that is made with rum and lime and guava juice and simple syrup. I added some bitters into mine. And it's based on one of Jessica's favorite cocktails, which is the daiquiri. And then you love to add guava, right? That's one of your favorite ingredients. I love guava juice. It's the best. And a lot of people hear daiquiri and they're thinking like a strawberry frozen smoothie situation. Mm -hmm. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. I spent some years as a craft cocktail (laughs) bartender. It's very simple. It's just usually rum, simple syrup, which is a sugar water mixture, uh, and lime mm-hmm. juice. So it's the best. It sounds, you know, easy. It's equal parts, but it's so good. And yeah, just add so a little good. fruit juice. I like fresh ingredients. That's, yeah, my bread and butter. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love that. I was so stoked to come across your work and also realize that you have a background making cocktails, being a bartender. Like, holy shit, this is the perfect collaboration. So really excited about that. Yeah, sometimes it all works out. <laughs> yeah. So I have a few different names. Um, I struggled with this, with naming this drink, but um, so I'm going to give you some of these awful titles that I came up with. <laughs> okay. Blame on me. The first one is maybe the most elegant. It's just the Jessica Burbank cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, or... I don't like it. Next. <laughs> Sean doesn't oh. like it. <laughs> uh, the supply and demand daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> The guava gouge. <laughs> that one sounds nasty. Oh, I know, it's gross. That sounds nasty. <laughs> so gross. That actually, yeah, it sounds like it might mean something bad. Yeah. Um, the daquardation. Oh! Like backwardation? Like yeah. That one's you pretty... Like that? I hate that that is the best one we could come up with. <laughs> it sounds awful, but I love it. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, like the MMT daiquiri since uh, you're interested in that kind of economics. 
I don't know, it kind of has a nice ring. Feeling the squeeze John came up with. It's kind of nice. Or the windfall daiquiri. So mm-hmm. what would you prefer out of all of these options here? You know, it would have been really fun if I tortured you all. And I came up with this cocktail, the pepperoncini martini, where it's like a dirty martini, but pepperoncini juice. Uh, a few oh, years ago, my that. coworkers God. were like, you're disgusting. And we could have done the MMTini. <laughs> Uh, oh my god! I, a lot of people don't like the pepperoncini juice. Just drinking it straight, I think it's fantastic. I oh drink my that. god! Yeah. I would love yeah. that. Yeah, pepperoncinis are the best. Yeah. Well, next time you come on the show, we'll do that one. Sounds good. <laughs> Got yeah. it all worked out. <laughs> Sweet dude. Is there, are we going with the dacordation? <laughs> it's the yeah, best let's one. Yeah, go with that. And people will find out why as they listen. Yeah, exactly. It's like a little uh, teaser. <laughs> all right. Well, I thought maybe we could start by just sharing a little bit of your personal story, how you got into the work that you're doing, and kind of what led you to become an anti-capitalist. So I grew up just outside of New York in a super working class family. Like everyone on my block was uh, doing work in basically like rich people's houses who are bankers in Manhattan. So Stanford's right on the Metro North rail line. Most people's parents are just training into the city every day. And they live in these really nice houses in Connecticut. And so my dad was a carpenter and my mom was a bookkeeper for small businesses. Neither of them had college degrees. So when the recession hit, like the bottom really fell out for our family. Most of our childhood, they kind of insulated us from how vulnerable our economic position really was, right? Like we're kids. We don't fully understand what it's like to not have money. But then you go to middle school, you start to see your clothes are different from other kids. I couldn't have dental work done that I really needed. So I wore my class on my face and just growing up with the stark contrast was a lot. And then to see that bankers got bailed out with trillions of dollars of taxpayer money while we were struggling. So they tanked the housing market But my dad built homes for a living, like with his own two hands. He could make the thing, but we nearly lost ours. So that was my first sense of like, this system's not set up for us. Yeah. And from then on, it was like, let's figure out why. Uh, And we're always taught there's good reasons why things are the way they are, that there's scarcities in our society. Then I slowly found out that that wasn't true. And I was like, all right, how do we fix this? Where are the problems? Yeah. God damn. And then you dove in deep. Can you tell us a little bit of your academic background and organizing with the Bernie Sanders campaign? Yeah, it's interesting. So academic background, I just got really lucky. So I was one of those kids that uh, we can swear, right? Swear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Great. Grip great. it and rip it. <laughs> so <laughs> I fucked off a lot in high school. Whoa. I was not in school. <laughs> Uh, Too far, no. <laughs> oh, no, this is language. This is a children's <laughs> broadcast. Um, so, yeah, high school, bad student, bad. Uh, hmm. But I really liked extracurricular activities, and I got roped into, like, this trade school program, so that was so fun. We could, like, hmm. groom dogs, and I was in these floral art contests, and then... I learned a little bit about public speaking and was talking about Monsanto Seed Corporation, corporate agriculture, because I went to agriculture-based trade school, which is unusual. I was in the FFA, had like my corduroy jacket. uh, (laughs) And then from there, that translated to like debate team and and mock trial. And so I got a sense of politics uh, and got lucky that I got leadership scholarships to go to this tiny school, Wells. And that's important just because the mentor I met there 
is Tukumbi Lumumba Kasongo, who like I owe everything to him because he took me under his wing and I could not afford to go back to school. And he made me his teaching assistant and just really made me interested in studying international studies and politics while I was there and economics. And he's the nephew to Patrice Lumumba, who was killed by the CIA. So it's very full circle uh, how much time I spent like talking about CIA history and the systems I spent my life fighting against that this guy became my mentor so early on. Uh, I didn't put it together then. I just thought he was fascinating and brilliant. But he really shaped my mind from there, went back to organizing and bartending. And he was like, so where are you applying for graduate school? And I was like, I'm not going to graduate school. Like, what, me? No. And uh, he was like, no, you are. And here's the schools (laughs) you're applying to. And I was like, I'll never get in. And then I did. And then I learned that there really is no good reason for why things are the way they are. Well, I'm so glad that he like picked up on the fact that you had a mind for this kind of stuff and that you had a mind not only to absorb it, but to like explain it in simple terms. Um, I mean, he must have seen something in you. He was like, I want to see this go as far as I possibly can. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure he's happy with that. (laughs) He is proud of what I'm doing right now, which was like a super emotional email that I got while I was in the studio at TYT about to go on air for a power panel. And I was like, I cannot read this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the best. That's awesome. Was there anything more that you wanted to say about like specifically how you started to become an anti-capitalist? Yeah. I didn't know what capitalism was until I had this professor, Kent Clickgard, who's an amazing man, an ecological economist, and uh, such a cool guy and the type of person you want to spend time with and can explain things in so many different ways because he Mm. fully understands what he's talking about. And I took this class, political economy, with him. First day, he's like, your first assignment is to read the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. <laughs> and we're all like, what? Oh, yeah. Like, no. Like, communism in America? Like, no no way. <laughs> and uh, I was like, this is a ridiculous assignment. Like, I didn't even know what communism or capitalism was. I yeah. knew that people say capitalism is, you know, a free market. And yeah. we can't have the government running things because that would be authoritarian. <laughs> and... Uh, Communism is when you have an authoritarian economy run by the government, of course, and it's terrible and people starve. Like, these are the thoughts that I have. Uh So we read the manifesto. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, low-key, he made some good points. But I'm still, like, critical. Uh And then halfway through the class, I, I get it. I'm like, oh, capitalism is literally an economy run by private owners for profit. That doesn't make sense as a premise, a good premise for an economic system, that Mm -hmm. whoever owns things that they end up owning initially because they show up with guns and take it by brute force. They do nothing to earn it. They're not elected by anyone to be the managers of these resources and direct our labor power. Totally. They're just the guys that stole stuff initially and Mm -hmm. have passed that wealth on for generations So should a few people who control a ton of wealth and resources make decisions for all of our labor power, uh, all of the resources we have within our country's borders, and just decide how all of that is used for everyone else? Like, that's Mm. not a real democracy. We should all have a say in what our work goes on to achieve and how our resources are used. So as soon as I understood what capitalism really was, I was like, oh, absolutely not. That makes no (laughs) sense. I love that. One of the questions I had prepared for you is about what is undemocratic about capitalism. We might as well just jump to that since we're touching on it right now. So what what are the undemocratic aspects of capitalism? 
Right. The first thing I would say is, is people always tell you a person makes a free choice to take the job that they have. Because when you talk about labor exploitation with people, a lot of what they say is like, well, you made the choice to get a job. If you don't like how it is there, get a job somewhere else. Totally. That's an illusion. That choice, that free will, it's all an illusion. Because when you are born in the United States, but in many countries around the world that are capitalists, you can either work for a living or die. You have to sell your labor to someone else because other people own everything. It is illegal in most places to just live off of the land. You can't go off and start growing your own food and build your own house like you could back in the day. That land is all owned by other people. So you have to just get a job in order to have a house, to have water, to have food. And a lot of us are socialized to not even criticize the notion of working for a living. Like just the idea that you have to work to exist is so ingrained in us from such a young age And it makes no sense. So when you're in that position where it's either starve, be thirsty, have no shelter, or sell your labor to someone else, you're coerced into making the decision to sell your labor. And because they own everything, they can pay you a lot less than your labor is worth. So $7.25 an hour is a lot less than your labor is worth if you're a bartender like I was and you're doing $2,000 of sales in an hour, making the bar a ton of money. Yeah. Jesus. They're making so much profit off of the work that you're doing, paying you far less than the value of it. Mm-hmm. And so exploitation, being forced into that position, that is undemocratic. Those people are making decisions for how all of our labor is used. In a democratic society, we should have some say, but also in a democratic society, we shouldn't be forced to work for other people. Mm-hmm. Like a key tenet of democracy is that the society is by and for the people. This is a society by and for the bosses. And unless yeah. we change the economic system, we will never have democratic politics either. <laughs> a society by and for the bosses. Uh, that's a, such a great line. I'm going to think about that all the time. <laughs> God, let's let's get deeper into some of the problems with our capitalist economy, specifically in relation to the oil and gas industries. So I wanted to cover some of the recent like predatory practices of the fossil fuel corporations. This quarter alone, ExxonMobil has made $20 billion in profits, with Chevron raking in $11 billion and Shell pulling in $9.5 billion. Could you help me explain how fossil fuel companies have been able to get to the point where they're making record profits in times of war and an ongoing pandemic, while so many of us are hurting and paying exorbitant amounts to the pump? The fossil fuel industry is ridiculous. I was talking about this with Nina Turner this morning, and here's another phrase for you. She kept saying owner donors, Mm. uh, which I really like. Like the people who, you know, donate to our politicians, they own corporations, they run our entire society. So So the fossil fuel industry is, of course, driven by a profit motive, by having returns to shareholders. And Mm. what the shareholders want is that even though we're in a place where the extraction of oil, the extraction of fossil fuels is not efficient uh, like it used to be. So they're not making as much profit and they want to prolong the extraction of oil from the reserves that they have for as long as possible so that they have stable earnings and income passively. Like they're not doing any labor to earn this money. They have share in an oil producing company and they don't want them to extract it all 
uh, so quickly. They would rather them drag it out, yeah. have it be scarce domestically, and have the prices remain high and consistent so that they're keeping consistent profits. This is why you have CEOs like Scott Sheffield that said, no matter what the price of a barrel of oil goes to, we promised steady returns to shareholders and we're not changing our growth plans. So then when there is a crisis, like there was during the pandemic, uh, we had you know war with Ukraine. And it was a weird situation that was exacerbated by the pandemic conditions initially, where mm-hmm. people stopped driving and the price for a barrel of oil went to zero. So many people bought up oil with the intent, you know, buy low, sell high, make some money. And all these people were stockpiling oil for so long. So then when we decided to sanction Russia because of their invasion of Ukraine, the oil market uh, was was in flux because there was a, a lack of oil. That's a huge gap. We were getting millions of, of barrels of oil from Russia on a daily basis. Yeah. And so now there's a shortage. Mm-hmm. We needed oil companies to increase domestic production, and they refused to. And uh, there's a few reasons for that. You could say, well, they were making a very smart business calculation where if they were to invest in building new rigs and drilling new wells, uh, and then another variant hit and the price for a barrel of oil went to zero again, they'd be in a bad situation where not only did they cut into their revenue, now prices are going down. That's going to reduce revenue as well. And those shareholders in Wall Street would be pissed. So they wouldn't want to do that. I would say... You run literally the energy industry. We're in a situation where we desperately need to increase domestic production. You will profit more by pushing out more product, but they are so driven by profit motives and care nothing of consumers and everyday people that need to get to work that they would rather do less work, not have to increase production and continue profiting off of a situation that is scarcity. That's precisely what, what price gouging is, is when you're in a crisis situation and you charge more than what's deemed reasonable for a product or a service. And that's exactly what they've been doing with oil for a very long time. We were watching some of your videos, the fun one with like the multiple different characters around the she gas prices, those, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the one thing that really stuck out to me is like price gouging is illegal, right? Like how are they getting away with this? Right. So price gouging, it's one of those things where they'll define it very narrowly. So during the pandemic, when people were buying masks and selling them for, you know, way more than what you usually pay for a mask, right? They had Mm -hmm. all these masks hoarded and they're like $50 for a mask. They would call that price gouging. And there were people getting arrested for this uh, locally. Hmm. But when you have these huge oil companies doing it, it's them versus the federal government. Like, is a, a local DA going to sue the Shell gas station down the street and take on a massive corporation? Certainly not. And so when you have all of your politicians being lobbied by these very fossil fuel companies, it's it's like they're they're too big to be held accountable right now, which means that if a bunch of people stood up and organized and had a bunch of direct actions around this, I think it could have gone in another way and we could have seen some regulation. I fully believe that the only way things will change is if mass people demand action. So yes, they, they should be held accountable for this price gouging. Will they be? No, certainly not. And I should explain the, the dacordation name. The oil <laughs> market yes. went into <laughs> Please do. backwardation. Mm-hmm. Um, so backwardation is when the, the spot price is higher than the futures price. So that means if you were to buy a barrel of oil today, you would pay more than if you agree to buy one a few months from now. 
That's mm-hmm. a weird situation. Usually we expect the price for a good or service to go up over time. This is rooted in speculation in the oil market and a lot of the lack of regulation under the Trump administration. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people were doing these really sketchy swap trades in the oil market where they basically are betting on what the price of a barrel of oil will be and really driving the price of the barrel of oil down in the future and up presently, which also led to the increases in price for a barrel of oil. Because if they bet on what the price of a barrel of oil will be, now all of the people in Wall Street have this incentive to make some money. And I'm sure people who made those investments and bets were the price setters or people who knew the price setters. So right now, our economy is driven a lot by people treating Wall Street like it's a casino where they are gambling, but they also get to be dealing. Yeah. And so the backwardation situation was was really bad. It's another reason why they weren't investing in increasing domestic production, because if it seems like the price is going to go down in the future, that's a risky investment to make. I see. You know, the, the whole concept of the oil and gas industry is trying to prolong their profit extraction from fossil fuels. Do you think that that's largely because they see the writing on the wall that they are a dying fucking industry, that they are like not going to be around for long, that they are going to actually run out of their resource? So by trickling it out slowly over time, they can just get as much from the consumer as they possibly fucking can. Is that is that what's happening? It's hard to put myself in the shoes of an oil executive or a shareholder in a major oil company, right? <laughs> I feel like we're just super fundamentally different human beings. But uh, yeah. Try doing like a Texas accent. <laughs> that might help. Get your hat. Yeah, get your hat. Get a big I'll get hat. a Monopoly Man hat and like a monocle and then I'll just oh, I'll get yeah. some whiskey and go. just sit in front of a fireplace for a while and just really try. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah. monocles on the show. <laughs> I think it is that they want to extend how many years they can they can profit off of this. And I think they're not so much thinking about climate change and thinking about oh well, the yeah. government one day will maybe not be on our side and maybe they will make the big switch to renewable energy. I don't think they're afraid of that. What I do think they understand is that after we peaked for the you know maximum efficiency of the production of oil and extraction and then we had to go to less efficient me- methods like like fracking and and getting oil yeah. in ways where it's far less efficient much more costly much more risky environmentally and there's all sorts of lawsuits that could happen mm-hmm. yeah it became more difficult to extract oil and i think they had this moment where they were like mm We've got to extend this so we can continue to make money, not because the planet's going to burn, but because we're, we're running out of domestic resources. And this is also why we became so focused on getting oil from other countries abroad. The CIA has always been an arm of United States-based multinational corporations. And so when we saw that we, were, we had limited oil reserves here, we immediately became interested in, okay... How do we extract resources from other countries and make sure the, the people in charge will allow us to, to do that indefinitely? And we can exploit the labor of the people there so that we can get the, the oil and have it be our own. And the CIA was very effective in doing this and just saying, hey, like if you work with us and we coup that other guy and we get you in there and you're our buddy and you help us out, you get to live a comfortable life. Like, how does that sound for you? And we just spent so much time wheeling and dealing all across the world. And so it's crazy how much this has international reach and how much this mindset of scarcity that we have 
within the country of like individualism, every man for himself, we're competing for resources, which are limited is what we tell people. We've applied that abroad. And instead of working with other countries, we're like every state for themselves and we're all competing for resources and we will brutalize you if you don't just give them to us. And you're kind of pointing at the fact that this scarcity is manufactured. It's artificial. They are forcing a constraint on the supply of this oil to make the the value of it even more. It kind of cuts the heart of like how fucked up capitalism is <laughs> and that it, it creates these artificial scarcities and tries to extract profit out of people that are in desperate need of these scarce items. So, yeah, and we're going to see that more and more with oil and gas going forward. Yeah. And with lots of other things. <laughs> no, that's super important. Yeah, that's a key tenet of capitalism, that the, the reason people don't have enough is because there isn't enough. It's an intentional mismanagement of resources, right? There are about 552,000 homeless people in the United States, but about 16 million vacant units. And when you talk to people about homelessness, they're like, how can we build more houses? That is not the problem. The numbers show very clearly that's not the problem. Likewise, with energy and with oil production, like we don't have to be relying on fossil fuels for all of our energy. We already know renewable energy exists, and we could very easily direct labor towards creating wind and solar farms. But because all of our resources and labor power is directed by these people who have very narrow profit motives, that's not going to happen. And because our housing industry is run by people who want to make money off of the commodification of housing, we're never going to see those half a million homeless people put in half a million of the 16 million vacant units. And it's, it's all about people making money. And it just doesn't have to be like that. It's so fucked up. I'm hearing these things pointed out more and more by so many people and young folks who understand that shit's fucked up. I'm getting screwed here. What's wrong? Okay, there's some basic things going on that are not right. And like, one of the reasons why I love your work is that you get into the weeds, you understand the complexities of a lot of these economic issues, but you also know how to reduce things down to like very digestible and intelligible, <laughs> accessible kernels of truth, you know? So yeah, great job there. Cheers to you for that. <laughs> yeah, I think more people are ready for this kind of stuff is because they see that they're not doing well. We were all sold a dream in this country that if you work hard, you'll do well. And a lot of people work very hard and are not doing well. So the narratives that were told no longer stand up with the evidence in people's everyday lives. And so people are ripe to learn why things are the way they are. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I, I haven't met anyone else who does what I do in this industry. And it's it's really hard, like working in political commentary uh, and in this space of like online storytelling, there's no working class kids. And in the policy field, there was one other kid that grew up in a struggle, maybe two or three in my graduate school cohort. And yeah. that's crazy. Like the people who are studying the problems and trying to find the solutions have no idea where to look. And so if you, Ugh, you know, yeah. grow up working class... You understand, like, if I explain this to my parents, they won't get it. And I don't think uh, a working class person will just adopt the language of an Ivy League institution. Like, I can't show up there and say, like, all of the words you use to describe this are now my language and the words I'll use to describe this, because that's not where I come from. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to keep using the language I've always had and apply those concepts that you're teaching 
to what I know and how I communicate. And I think it helps me reach more people. I think another factor in this is, you know, Tukumbi grew up in the Congo. And so he was always translating things from several different languages. And so he had to explain things in a very clear and concise way with accessible language. And so studying under him for so long, I think also influenced how I communicate about this stuff. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I was wondering about how you were able to develop such clear communication methods. I wanted to talk about how do we stop these companies from financially taking advantage of people while destroying the planet? How do we hold them accountable for the damage they've caused? Do we nationalize these industries? Do we demand climate reparations? Do we start blowing up pipelines? I'm going to have Andreas Mom on the show to talk about how to blow up a pipeline, his book. What are some things that we can do to start holding these, these companies accountable for the destruction that they're causing? There's a few different ways to answer this, because I think it's got to be a convergence of factors, right? Yeah. One is direct action, making people in power un uncomfortable, right? You come to the people in, in power. So the CEOs of corporations even, or the Congress people responsible for regulating them, which they don't do, and I don't think we can ever account on them doing, but um, or mm -hmm. account for them ever doing. We can't write that into history in the future because it's just so implausible yeah. uh, the way things are set up. So we've got to make people who are running these companies so uncomfortable, which means showing up to their country clubs, showing up to their doorsteps, camping out in front of their houses, like individual actors mm -hmm. are making decisions. When we think about corporations, it's very easy to have them be so abstract. Like this big thing called Chevron is responsible for extracting oil. There's a clear board of directors there. There is a CEO. There are shareholders and there's documentation of who they are. We can rock they up have addresses. and make them so <laughs> uncomfortable, right? That's very powerful. <laughs> like the whole point of them accumulating endless wealth is to live a life of comfort and luxury. And once you take that away from them, guess what? The pathway to getting more wealth no longer means something to them. So I'm mm -hmm. like my theory of change is really rooted in my experience organizing but I will say, if we get into the policy shit, the most important thing we can do is have a federal jobs guarantee where mm -hmm. you have people mm -hmm. working for more than a living wage, uh, being paid for what the value of their labor is worth. That wage can be set by the government, have it be a flat wage. It would not be the federal minimum wage of 725 that we have now. Yeah. That needs to be made no. very clear. And so you have a public option for work where the people who are not currently employed and even people who are, who want to have something different, can choose to work in a program similar to the programs we had under FDR in the New Deal. And we could say, mm -hmm. all right, people, what do we want to direct our labor to? What do we have to get done? What has to change about our society? I would say we definitely need better infrastructure and we definitely need to transition to renewable energy. So you can have people uh, receive training. And then build wind farms, build solar farms, build new roads, build mm -hmm. bridges, build a high-speed rail. Guess what? There's a huge return on investment in this because now you have sustainable energy for many years. After eight to ten years, you know, wind turbines pay for themselves. Mm -hmm. Also, you're training your workforce. That has a huge return on investment. And this idea that the Federal Reserve sells everybody – that there's an inverse relationship between an unemployment and inflation, the Phillips curve, right? That if uh, unemployment mm -hmm. goes down, inflation's going to go up. It doesn't make any sense because if you increase the productive capacity of your economy and you're producing more goods and services, 
just because there's more people with money, more people being paid higher wages because there's, you know, less competition in the labor market, there are more jobs for people, they have more money to spend. But also that increase in demand will be met with increased supply because guess what? Now we're producing more things and we can have a higher quality of life. Mm -hmm. So in situations mm -hmm. where let's say the government is fronting the money because they have the power of the purse, they can just hit a button on a computer and put those dollars into putting labor to work and all of our resources and tools and machinery to use to get this stuff done. That's not going to cause inflation. You're increasing the productive capacity of the economy. And so the way we think about how the monetary system is run is really important for building the future we want. Because when we realize, oh, we actually have the political structure set up to get this done. Congress has the power to do this today. We don't need a revolution to have a, yeah. a public option for employment. And now if you're Tesla, if you're Amazon, if you're Walmart, all of your employees can actually just leave and go there. So are you going to increase the, the meaningfulness of the day-to-day the -day job? Are you going to increase wages and benefits? Because now you've got to compete with this public option. Mm. And so a lot could change if we pass something like a Green New Deal. And that's, I think, why so many people are so hung up with the idea of a Green New Deal. I would not talk about it and say, it's the Green New Deal, because that's got a bad rep. It's a jobs guarantee. Ah, I love that. I love that. I I feel like I keep coming back to this with different people that I'm speaking with um, about capitalism, but there is actually so much um, common ground between folks on the right and folks on the left in that it's largely about economic injustice and feeling fucked over by your economy. If we could find a way to bridge the conversation gap and bring people into that discussion, strip away, yeah, the Green New Deal, things like that, where it's like, okay, we're calling the socialism now, we don't, I don't want to trigger anyone, <laughs> you know, um, if we could strip away some of that language and find ways to talk about this on terms that we can all agree on, that would be so, like, we could get folks on the right to advocate for anti-capitalist causes, you know, it's weird, but it's, I believe in it. <laughs> can you sell this without, like, relying on the person you're selling it to fundamentally giving a shit about other people because that to me is where things break down trying to like get people on the right on board with this kind of thing and not mm -hmm. call, like even if you're not calling no, it socialism if it's just all about you if it's just all about your own self-interest and how you know the the wealth is being absorbed into pockets and it is not being distributed to you. <laughs> you know, you're getting fucked at, at your work, you know, <laughs> like how and who is not getting fucked? Oh, there's a few really, really rich people. <laughs> they are making out like bandits. So it's a good question, John. Yeah. I love that you brought up self-interest. It's important because you can't expect people to be motivated to do things if they're not in their self-interest. And that's OK. Working class yeah. people are told to kind of Press their self-interest all of the time, like do what your, your boss yeah. wants you to do. You're forced to do that all day long. And so it's important to realize that that only serves people in power. But we're also told that power is bad and you shouldn't want it and it corrupts you. And that's a story we're told so that benevolent people don't end up seeking power to change the way things are. The dominant narratives in our society are spread by people in media intentionally mm -hmm. because all of the media moguls william randolph hearst and the likes 
Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post, these people control so much of the ideas that are in our brains every day. Mm -hmm. And it's important to break that down. So benevolent people should have power because they'll do good things with it. It's not going to corrupt you. This is a lie that you're told. And if you're a good person, you don't want to be corrupt. So you don't seek power. Moreover, you don't seek power to pursue your self-interest because we're told being self-interested is bad. You should be selfless. That is also just helping the people in power. So when you organize, you have to talk to someone and really identify what their self-interest is. So if I were to knock someone's Mm -hmm. door in the Bernie campaign, I would do this by sharing my own personal stories, which we're not apt to do. We're not told you're supposed to talk about economic struggles. But one time I knocked this guy's door and he said, I see you're wearing a Bernie shirt. Listen to me. I don't like him. I think people should be shot when they cross the border. Most people would leave. They'd be like, okay, have a good day. Goodbye. You're not my guy. But I was like, all right, I got time. And I said, (laughs) I don't agree with every politician on every issue. And I understand that, like, a lot of people are worried about keeping, you know, jobs. And so I addressed the heart of his concern because most people are taught to hate immigrants because they're told they're taking your jobs. The problem, of course, is that corporations want to exploit cheap labor and they can pay people less than the federal minimum wage (laughs) if they're not citizens, et cetera. We know that this was not the conversation I needed to have. So instead I said, but I really like Bernie because my parents are struggling to retire and Social Security is not going to be enough for them. Like, is there, Hmm. you know, something you feel like needs to change, uh, you know, with our our economy or, or with our politics? And he said... Yeah. And he touched the side of his house and this man that was just aggressive seconds ago nearly started crying and the house was falling Mm. apart. And he said, you know, this house is falling apart. I don't make enough to get by. I don't make enough on Social Security. Mm. I had to get a job and my wife had to move away and get a job selling chicken eggs so that we could get by. (laughs) And he ended up committing to caucus for Bernie because Bernie had a plan to raise Social Security. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So that was absolutely in his self-interest to vote for someone like Bernie Sanders. Like, I didn't have to say, please care about the the refugees crossing the southern border. Yeah. uh, Because it's actually in everybody's self-interest. I would argue even the billionaires to have an economy that's run for the benefit of the majority of the people. Because I don't think it's a Mm -hmm. meaningful life to endlessly accumulate wealth. And that's all the billionaires in the world have been taught, is that that's success. That's what you should do. That's what makes you a good person. And that's what quantifies a good life, is having many dollars in your bank account. Also, you know, they're going to... They're going to cut your fucking head off eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's only a matter of time, man. (laughs) They're going to cut your head off, Gorge. They're going to cut your head off, Gorge. (laughs) And you're right, like, building a more equitable world is going to be a better world for everyone. You wouldn't have these rich people that are in their own little bubble universes that are like largely isolated from communities. Like there would be a lot that they would even gain by moving away from this capitalist system. I can see you making a TikTok video about how getting rid of capitalism would benefit billionaires, you know, (laughs) something like that. It's going to be good for you too, guys. (laughs) Man, that's high on the list of hard sells. Yeah, yeah, that would be hard. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Jeff Bezos is happy. I don't think Elon Musk is happy. I don't think Warren Buffett is happy. I don't think it's a fulfilling and meaningful life to constantly be making the consideration, how can I accumulate more wealth? How can I run this business to make more profit and have more returns to shareholders? 
uh, I don't think it's a meaningful life to just have private jets that are destroying the planet and only want designer clothes and have so much wealth while so many people are struggling and know that just the sheer fact of you holding those dollars is why other people are struggling. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they are genuinely happy because their life is not filled with community. It's super lonely being a billionaire, traveling, being in meetings, having a private jet. Mm -hmm. Everybody who knows you wants something from you. I, yeah. You can't yeah. convince me they're happy with the way things are right now, but they're stuck and no one's going to get them out unless we decide you're not allowed to have that much money anymore. And guess what? Now you can join a community again. Now you can have meaningful human interaction again. Now you can fill your time with something other than the endless accumulation of wealth. And you can actually enjoy your time here on Earth and, and maybe redeem yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah, I really just don't think they're happy. I totally agree with that. I mean, you once you have enough wealth to meet all of your needs, you can't meet them over and over and over again. That's it. You've maxed out, and now it's all just excess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if someone that's capable of accruing billions of dollars is even also capable of happiness, though. <laughs> Do they even feel human emotions at that point? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think something must psychologically change within your brain once you realize you have enough money that you can do whatever you want. Like, whatever you want, you can pay for it. Uh, and of course, as we've discussed, that's limited. Like you can't have genuine human, you can't pay for genuine human interactions and things like that. But you can get a lot done. You can move mountains. Like some billionaires have more money than some economies, some countries. Yeah. And I think that yeah. must mess with you. Like to realize you have that much power, you kind of mm -hmm. probably feel superhuman. It probably fucks you up. Oh, yeah. To be honest. I don't know. Elon seems like a pretty grounded dude. <laughs> What is fucking totally psycho? Fine. That Nothing guy. weird going on there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh dear. At this point in the conversation, I'm wondering, like, do you think putting the transition to renewables into the hands of billionaires and the fossil fuel companies, do you think that's a way forward that we should hope for? Even though, I mean, I'm sure like you can see all the problems that would come out of that. I, I think about this all the time, like, why why aren't they spearheading this transition so that they can capitalize on the future economy that we're, is going to be created? Like, why aren't they doing that right now to just get ahead of it? Yeah, it's um, not like it's not a sure thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But then I feel, like, mixed about whether or not we should hand over the future profits of a future energy system to these same people that have been ruining our planet. So <laughs> what do you think about that, Jessica? Yeah, it's a good question. I think they factored in the consideration that they would have a limited ability to price gouge in a situation where we had renewable energy mm. uh, and our energy resource was not finite. Uh, so they're probably considering that. But do I think that they should be responsible for the transition? Uh, no, right? So the, the, the thing that's dragging them back is they think quarter by quarter. That's how Wall mm. Street is. And yeah. so they want to make profit every quarter consistently because that makes the stock's value go up and increases returns to shareholders. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're living quarter by quarter, you're not going to make an investment for something 10 years down the line. You're just not. 
uh, you want to see returns on investments immediately. And so the Wall Street culture and how it runs is a huge problem with that because you make all these profit projections. And if you're below on those profit projections, your stock's going to tank. Uh, they don't want that to happen. So they're very caught up in that life and that culture. They're not really thinking about the economy 10 steps back like we are right now. And yeah. so I don't think we should have corporations controlling our energy industry. It shouldn't be a few guys that are private owners. But if some people have some experience with the energy market and working with the energy grid, et cetera, I think they could apply for a job with the federal government when we nationalize <laughs> the energy sector and apply those skills for a very reasonable salary and, and work for the benefit of the people. I think that would be just fine. Uh, so it could be the same actors, but in a very different scenario. I don't think energy should be privatized. Mm -hmm. You heard it here first, folks. Corporations should not be in control of our future. What a shocking revelation on cocktails and capitalism. What a hot take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, very radical. Yeah, for some reason, a lot of people just like don't have their mind wrapped around nationalization. Like they hear that word and they're like, oh, like Venezuela. Um, yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. But like... Should any one guy own an entire oil reserve? Like, what did he do to earn that? Like, it's been in the ground for thousands, millions of years, right? Totally. A lot of that is like dinosaur stuff, right? And so, <laughs> should a guy own this vast resource? Like, no, obviously yeah. not. Like, why would one guy have the earth just because his great 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 grandfather, like, fought some people and declared that land his? That makes no sense. That is not a just yeah. system. So of course it should be owned and split by the people. That makes perfect sense to me. You just have to think about it for 20 seconds. And a lot of people are so busy working to pay their bills, they don't have the time yeah. to. That's true. Nationalization just means an old white dude can't fuck you. That's, that, <laughs> yeah. man, that's it, right? right? Like, Put that on a t-shirt, John. <laughs> you want to get yeah. fucked by an old white dude? No? Nationalize. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to speak to people in terms they understand. <laughs> no one wants to get fucked by an old white dude. <laughs> that is a common, we can yeah, agree a universal on that, right? truth. <laughs> yeah. You take no shit in your life. You should also take no shit from your bosses and their bosses. Totally. Fuck yeah. When we were talking before in our last call, you brought up that the conversation about whether or not capitalism is worth preserving, whether or not it's a system that's worthwhile, that conversation doesn't happen enough. And I was just wondering if you had anything that you want to say about that, um, if you want to speak to that. Yeah. Should we preserve capitalism is an interesting question. I would say no. But the conversations we need people to have is uh, what is capitalism? Because a lot of people would say, I like capitalism. What they mean really when they say that is they <laughs> really like markets and they like shopping and they like products. Yeah. And those yeah. things are not unique to a capitalist economy. Capitalism is not an economy with a free market. The definition of capitalism is an economy run by private owners for profit. So what is the purpose of an economy then? Because if that's an economic system, is it one that can ever achieve the purpose of an economy? And so when you think about that, all right, that's a big question. An economy is how many people organize to meet their material needs collectively. And as human mm -hmm. beings, we've always naturally done this. We've collaborated for many, many years to meet our needs collectively. And Adam Smith, known as the father of capitalism, wrote about this and was interested in this phenomena. And he wrote that. Human beings evolved 
to work together so we could accomplish more together than we could separately. And that's how Mm -hmm. we became the dominant species on the planet. Because we work together. Adam Smith. And he wrote this with this idea of evolution many years before Darwin, which is crazy. Yeah. But that's very true. We naturally do that. Capitalism is antithetical to us ever achieving that ends because it's not even about people meeting their material needs. And so we need to say, okay, if capitalism is not free markets, we can have another economy that's run by democratic systems of decision making and elected representatives and some direct democracy ballot initiatives like, hey, like, do you want a high speed rail this year or do we invest those resources in building solar energy? And it's a ballot initiative. People vote on nationally. That's the kind of thing that we could have if we had a democratic economy. So we need to be very clear and have the conversation, not should we preserve capitalism, but what parts of the current economy do we want to keep? We want to keep markets. I think many people like having markets and people having the ability to, you know, have small businesses and things like that. Mm -hmm. But having private owners run the economic system for profit doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. We should have that conversation. Do we like that or not? Yeah, definitely. Turning a little bit to your positive vision for an alternative to our capitalist system, what kind of systems would you look to? I know that you are a big believer in modern monetary theory and democratic socialism. I was just wondering if you want to talk about some of those topics or, yeah, where we should go. <laughs> I thought she was an anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> no, no. No? I'm a libertarian, man. Hell <laughs> yeah, brother. Um. She's ready to eat people after everything goes to shit. Yeah, Her and totally. Alex Jones munching on their neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Munching. I think we can learn because we don't have some model country where we're like, those guys are doing it right where we can replicate that system and expect things to go well, because there's no one country that I think has an economic system where things are going great. And we can learn, I think, more from failures where people have tried different things. And I would point to Nicaragua, where we had Mm. democratically elected socialists. They were democratic socialists, the Sandinistas. And of course, the CIA went in there under the Reagan administration and cooed them and messed things up. And... The Sandinistas also described themselves. And I was in a, a room with the Sandinistas and the Contras. So 40 years after the revolution, so this would put us in 2019 at Brown University. So they have the revolution in 1979. Then some guy at Brown, this is crazy, invites all of them. And he's like, hey, Contras, like main leaders of this movement, ambassadors, people who worked for journalists who were foreign correspondents in the country at the time, people from the indigenous community in Nicaragua, the main actors of the revolution all decided to meet up 40 years later and talk about what went wrong. Wow. And I was super lucky to be in the room because I I knew one of the guys organizing it who was a foreign correspondent for the time, Stephen Kinzer. He's a good friend. Now he writes all of these books exposing, uh, you know, what the CIA has done abroad. And so listening to them be very honest and critical about what they did, like a lot of what went wrong, you can point to the CIA, but they also had this idea that the economy couldn't be community-based. And Armstrong Wiggins, who's uh, someone who came from the indigenous community, really put this in a good perspective. He said, we could live off of the land, like we had all of the resources we needed, we could provide for ourselves, we had a system of doing this. But because we would not politically align with the Sandinistas, 
you burned all of our land uh, because you were threatened by us potentially joining forces with the Contras. And because we had our own food and we had our own way of sustaining ourselves and we couldn't depend on you, you saw us as a threat to your power. And Mm. I think that's really interesting. And I like the idea that we need to focus on local economies a lot if we're to move forward and be successful. And we need to rebuild communities and community structures, which means investing in that on a local level. And you can own, like local governments, of course, cannot just print their own dollars. They have to raise that in revenue. And some people might not want to mm-hmm. invest in that. But seriously, this is something the federal government could appropriate funds for, where you have people meet together and say, like, what do we want to have as a community? Like, what would make our community better? Do we want to, like, build more in the schools? Do we want to do X, Y, or Z? Most politics is local, and we need to invest in local economies because having these big corporations run everything doesn't make sense. It's also not sustainable for our agriculture or food infrastructure. So really taking the lesson that people can be self-sufficient without a national government telling them what to do and really allowing communities to thrive and investing in communities is important. And building Mm -hmm. democratic infrastructure for that decision-making. How do we appropriate those funds? Is it just we have, you know, the city council and we have the controller and we have the mayor and they come together and decide? Or do we have many people vote on budget items? Like, these are real Mm -hmm. things people can consider uh, when you have an economy that is democratic, truly. And Mm -hmm. I think we also need to consider what if, like, I think about the nurses' strike right now where all of these nurses know their industry very well. They know what it takes to take care of patients. And a big reason they're on strike is because they have decided to short staff them, so put more patients per nurse, but also to save money, put patients that need to be on an ICU floor on a lower floor. So the nurses cannot give patients the care they need to survive. And so they're striking and withholding their labor to basically protect patients' lives because so many nurses are quitting because it wears on their hearts and souls to watch people dying whose life they could have saved if their boss gave them the proper resources and staffing. Uh, Mm. And then they see the hospitals make insane profits and people die for that to happen. And so them striking is changing the healthcare industry and the healthcare sector and what goes on in that (laughs) hospital. Workers who work in certain industries should have a a say in how those industries are run as well. So democratic Mm decision-making is a huge part of organized labor. So having people who labor in those specific industries making decisions about those industries is important as well. So people making decisions about public goods in their communities, people in certain industries making decisions about the work and how the labor is used in that industry, and on a national level, us making decisions about the resources and labor power we have and a federal public option for work. Like, these are all things we could have. And Mm -hmm. that's why I draw on the MMT perspective, because it's the fastest way to get there. Something the Sandinistas said as well is they lost sight of what they were fighting for because they were so caught up in the the fighting. And a big Mm -hmm. reason they did this is because, you know, the United States was in there fucking their shit up and arming the Contras and uh, spreading misinformation among the Sandinistas. And so... They said we we're so caught up in fighting them that we weren't building the world we wanted to live Ugh, in. Yeah. And so how do we get this done peacefully without a revolution in the United States? I would not like for there to be a revolution for my family to be at risk of dying. And mm-hmm. MMT shows that the federal government has the power to appropriate funds. 
That is huge. So if we elect only officials who are willing to use that power to run an economy by and for the people, we can make the change with the existing governmental structures that we have. Like, we don't need to burn it all down. And so that's our one path to get this done peacefully, which is why I like MMT so much. What is MMT? <laughs> this is fr- the, the frustrating thing here is this is all too smart for me to make jokes about. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what half of this shit. What is MMT? I'm getting angry over here. <laughs> so MMT is modern monetary theory. And <laughs> that's, yeah, I get that asked all the time. I really need to get in the habit of just like saying the full thing. Yeah, modern monetary theory. So... We've been taught that the government should not democratically have members of Congress vote to spend money, that it should essentially, this is how it runs right now, this is not MMT, it should be outsourced to banks. And then the banks make decisions about how new money enters the economy. We're essentially outsourcing the function of money creation, which Mm. makes no sense. Like, it's the U.S. dollar. It's our currency. We should decide how it's used, where new dollars enter the economy, where they're going, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's banks. And they say, okay, you want to start a business? Tell me how this business will be profitable, and you will pay me back this loan with interest, and these new dollars will enter the economy. They'll go into your hands. You'll put productive resources to use, tools, machinery, land, and labor. You'll employ some workers with that money as well. You start your business, it increases, you know, the supply that we have. So there are more goods and services because you start a business with this money and you offer them. You make some money back in revenue. You pay off this loan. That's how new money enters the economy right now, which is insane. Because what could happen instead is Congress could just say, all right, let's put this new money into the economy, into building a high-speed rail, and we employ the workers, et cetera. And so... Mm -hmm. MMT says that money should be used in that way instead, like Congress should make decisions about monetary policy. That doesn't mean you can print infinite dollars and inflation is never a concern. It's that the check on inflation and money creation is new dollars should go to increasing productive capacity or things mm. that people in the society generally want and need, like healthcare. Mm. And having a healthy workforce does, to some degree, increase the productive capacity. So that's part of it, but they really believe in investing in public goods. Most MMTers will tell you that. But the one check on spending is if all of the productive capacity is put in use, so every worker that wants to work is employed, we don't have any more tools, land, machinery, or resources, the type of stuff you need to produce things. If all of that stuff's in use and then you print more dollars, that's a risk for inflation because where are those dollars going? Into somebody's hands and you're not increasing anything else. So now you've got increased demand without equally increasing supply. You can Uh explain this with conventional economics terms. So MMT says, Congress, use your power to create new dollars, use them for good. The way that the Federal Reserve is running the monetary system is ridiculous. And MMTers have predicted crashes based on their obscure methods of mitigating inflation by raising interest rates which makes it more expensive for banks to get money. Therefore, they make it more expensive for people to take out loans by increasing those interest rates. That means less people will take out those loans and start businesses and invest in businesses. There will be less jobs. It's basically a way to quell momentum in the labor movement and worker power. Because when you have a lot of options for work, guess what? You can ask for higher wages. But if there are less jobs and workers are competing for the same position – 
they are less likely to raise your wage. Like you'll take a job for a lower wage because you're so desperate and you know everybody's fighting for jobs. It also means that there's going to be higher turnover. And if there's someone who's fired very quickly, someone else can easily replace them, which makes it very difficult to organize unions. So right now, Mm. Jerome Powell with the Federal Reserve has directly said, and this is something MMTers have said for a long time, there's no demonstrated data that proves their model that they use for raising interest rates to address inflation. There's no data that shows these two things are correlated. So whenever they've raised interest rates, it hasn't been shown that inflation has gone down in response. Because we know current inflation is not caused from demand side problems. It's a supply problem. We have various supply shortages from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so raising interest rates to reduce demand isn't going to address that. So it's absolutely absurd. Jerome Powell said, you know, raising rates isn't going to decrease gas and grocery prices. And so MMT has predicted this for a very long time and has said, this is ridiculous and pointed this out and called it out very clearly. It's basically a lens for looking at Mm. the, the monetary system. Seems like a good updated lens that we're like, whereas classical economic theories and the economics that you get if you go onto econ in a normal fucking program, like a lot of those things are such like outdated and kind of flimsy theories that don't like necessarily, I mean, they're, they're like patterns that kind of describe reality, but they're not like proof. And we know this is exactly what's happening. And this is why the economy is doing this, you know? So it sounds like uh, MMT is kind of taking a little bit more data and refining some of these economic understandings, which is fucking dope, which is we, something we really need. But That's exactly right. Will I still be able to leverage my generational wealth to hoard billions of dollars under MMT? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Because people always say, well, if the federal government can just create new dollars, taxes are obsolete then. Like, MMTers don't believe in having any taxes, which everyday people paying taxes will not be necessary. Like, taxes will not be necessary under these conditions. However, everyone who is an MMTer believes in taxing profits and taxing the rich because Mm. these people hoarding this amount of wealth and having this much power in our economy is not sustainable. It's undemocratic. And so are taxes necessary for the federal government to raise revenue to pay for things? No, they issue the currency. They can create dollars whenever they need them. The analogy of a basketball game is good. You don't have the scorekeeper go around and collect points from each player at the beginning of the game to be able to hand them out. They're the scorekeeper. They write them down. Therefore, they exist. We don't need Mm -hmm. to tax people to raise revenue because the government's a currency issuer. But everybody believes in taxing the rich and making sure that nobody has generational wealth like that who's an MMT or like I haven't met one person who's like, yeah, let's just let them continue to accumulate wealth. Um, And also, I agree with all the other tenants of MMT. I've literally never met someone like that. So that's actually a really good point because it's a common criticism. Like you guys don't Hmm. believe in taxes. uh, And it's just not true. And for folks like John and I who don't know enough about MMT and for a bunch of our listeners out there who are probably like, okay, this is very interesting to me, but I don't, where do I go next to learn more? What would you recommend? Yeah, my girl, Stephanie Kelton. Uh, (laughs) She's great. She wrote a book called The Deficit Myth. She also has a sub stack (laughs) called The Lens. And she is someone who is a brilliant economist and could have studied at Harvard and Yale and the likes, 
basically she was advised that like this similar things to what my advisor said to me, which is basically like, you know, too much already. And if you go to those mm. schools, you'll only be frustrated by what they teach you. And she went to the new <laughs> school and uh, was able to do research that was like real because as you know, Erica said, this is an updated way of looking at the economic system. It's like the next progression in economic thought. And mm. as someone who studied policy at Brown, I was like, this isn't enough. Like, there's something missing. We need the next thing. Yeah. MMT is that. But Stephanie Kelton doesn't explain it like someone who is that, you know, brilliant and entrenched in, you know, academic institutions. She speaks in very plain language. You don't need a background in economics to, like, listen to her talks and read her books. I love that. I mean, it, and that's the approach that I'm trying to embody, that I think you embody so beautifully, um, and that more folks need to have access to because we're so told that we're kind of locked out of economic discourse, especially the younger generation. They just kind of assume that they don't know what's going on and that the adults have it handled and they'll figure it out. <laughs> but no, we're finding that that's not the case. Um, we need to make this stuff accessible. So I love that. I wanted to talk a little bit about how I heard you say that like social media and TikTok and these tools are one of the ways that capitalism is kind of undoing itself. And I come to this thought often, like capitalism gives us the tools to start to dismantle capitalism. Can you speak a little bit about how you're using the tools that capitalism has given you to <laughs> take on capitalism? Yeah, like us even having a conversation right now is an example of that, not only because we met on social media, Fuck but yeah. also because... <laughs> I was able to learn about this stuff because bankers are so greedy that they were like, well, we can get working class people into a ton of debt and make a bunch of money off of it if we just let them go to school, which was a mistake on their part, because then I understood how the system worked. And I was like, great, now I'm dedicating my life to dismantling it. Um, so really, like their greed is leading to their demise in so many ways. But the social media thing's interesting because they're like, people want a platform, they want to engage with each other, they want to be performing all the time, they want to be entertained. We're nosy, we want to see other people people's lives. We find that very fun. And so yeah. now we have this tool of mass communication. And if I start making TikToks telling people, hey, this is how our monetary system works and it's pretty messed up. <laughs> uh, now they're all pissed at the Fed. Now they understand the news when they use all of these weird terms about inflation mm -hmm. and interest rates and stuff. Like educating the masses is the biggest key to changing a society. Yeah. Because even yeah. if you successfully take power, if nobody knows like why the previous system was wrong or where we want to go from here, it's going to be pretty pointless. Like having yeah. the masses on board is key. Social media has been used as a tool for spreading information and educating. And it's something we haven't had to this scale ever before. And Gen Z doesn't have this <laughs> propaganda of like the, the Cold War mentality that anything that's not, you know, pure American capitalism is bad. Like we don't have mm -hmm. that fear. And so spreading these ideas to Gen Z on social media is even better. <laughs> I love that so much. Fuck yeah. I the really banks didn't account for Jessica. <laughs> nice try, banks, but you nice forgot try. one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Also, my last name's Burbank, so I Jank loves on TYT saying, like, take it to the bank. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't like that I have bank in my name. <laughs> Banks are usually bad. Uh, take it to the Burbank cocktail. <laughs> Damn. The future one. Yeah. Damn it. That's good. Fuck. <laughs> we all right, start up, over. Yeah, start, okay. start the recording over. Stop. We're going to have to do this all again now. <laughs> yeah. Take it from the top. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> well, now that we've said some of this about social media as a tool for dismantling capitalism, where can folks yeah. go follow you <laughs> and see the work you're doing? Yeah, so I love the TikTok. TikTok's my jam. It's where I started mm-hmm. using social media when the pandemic hit and we couldn't organize in person. Yeah. I was like, well, let's try this thing. So Coverbank on TikTok, Coverbank on Instagram. And it's going to be Coverbank on Substack soon, which I'm very excited about. The Substack oh, folks cool. have brought me into their fold and they've got a good platform on there for like the exchange of ideas. So I'm excited to use that. And Jessica Burbank on Twitter. And uh, you can watch videos of me on TYT and More Perfect Union. I'm on there programming regularly. Yeah, and those videos are so illuminating, so good. I really highly recommend for, for all of you listeners out there. Definitely go check out her TikTok. It's fucking fire. And you will learn so much so fast. <laughs> it's really so many amazing. hats. There's so many hats. <laughs> so many hats. Jessica so many definitely hats. wears so many hats. <laughs> That's actually true. I never put that together. (laughs) Perfect. Well, hell yeah. This has been so much fun. So fucking educational, entertaining. Like, I can't wait to release this one. I think it will really reach people in a really powerful way. So thank you so much for being willing to come on the show and share some of your amazing knowledge of our economic system and why it's fucked and why it needs to go. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Love what you all do. And it's very nice to not have like a one minute maximum for what I have to say or think about things. Because uh, these are complicated things, but it's really totally. important. And I love what you all do. It's really, it's really important to have longer form discussions. That's the best work that's being done out there. So bravo. And cheers to you. 